According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in the book of Exodus once again, Exodus chapter 25. This class is day 42, day 42 in our Through the Bible year. And the chapters we need to cover tonight are Exodus 25, 26, 27, 28. So uh, we've, we've done pretty well, I think, and we only missed the target twice out of, uh, out of 41 classes, so uh, we should jump on it tonight and be just fine for the four chapters that we need to cover. The tabernacle instructions. We've reached the point in the wilderness wanderings now, or at, in the Exodus event. They've come through the Red Sea, they've arrived at Mount Sinai, they're beginning to receive the law. We had the Ten Commandments in, in chapter 20. We have additional instructions that come in the book of the law that's written there from chapters 20 through 24. And now we're ready for uh, t- some tabernacle blueprints that will be spelled out starting in, uh, in chapter 25. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You tonight thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the the blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank You for the salvation that we have by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank You, Father, that not one of us deserves anything uh, except the lake of fire, Father. We're, we're sinners, and yet your Son took our place on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. And we thank you that now in Him we have every standing before you, Father, with full righteousness, and all of these things are beyond anything that we could ask or think. So, Father, we come to you tonight now excited about what we're going to learn as we feast upon your truth. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, I just remember that this is Wednesday night, so we want to take some uh, some Q and A time. If there's any questions that might be out there, and um, to my knowledge, I, I double checked my email before I got here tonight. I don't think there's any anything pending that I'm aware of, anyway. So if uh, if so, I'm I'm overlooking it. So um, somebody out there is on YouTube right now saying, "I asked you a week ago about such and such, and I've totally forgotten." But I believe we, uh, we've, we've caught up to date on that. So are there, we have a microphone ready to go. So if we have any new questions from our live studio audience. There we go. Moses has a question. So we're just uh, wondering from the, from the book of Job. Um, we saw that in chapter one, you know, uh, Satan was telling God, like, you know, surely if you if you aff- uh, afflict Job, you know, he's going to curse you to your face. And then yesterday you, you had mentioned something, uh, a difference between vulgarities, uh, profanities and like uh, cursing. Uh-huh. So with everything that Job did, in, like in chapter three and before his, his repentance, what would that be classified as? Like everything that uh, everything that was coming out of his mouth? Yeah. Oh, excellent question. So, um yeah, there, there's a distinction between a, a vulgarity and an obscenity and, um, and a profanity. And, and a lot of times those terms are used loosely and interchangeably and people don't realize there is a, a distinction. And to be fair, sometimes they're distinctions without a difference. But specifically speaking, when you are committing blasphemy against the Lord, okay, that's uh, that's quite clearly uh, taking the Lord's name in vain. That's quite clearly uh, a mental attitude sin. 
that, that feeds the sin of the tongue and, uh, and the issues there. So every time he accused God of being unrighteous, every time he accused God of being unfair, that, that Job's standard was superior to God's standard, that God was hypocritical in, uh, in knowing that Job was innocent but treating him as if he was guilty, in all of those expressions, Job was, was totally off base. And so, um, so yeah, that, that's, that's, uh, uh, that, that, that's profane. That's a profanity in terms of, of the blasphemy against, against God. So a vulgarity, the, 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 the Latin, like the Latin Vulgate, for example, is named for that. It's, it's just it's common. It's, it's, it's not upper class. It's, it's hoi polloi. It's just the, the language of the street. It's the language of the, of the, the uh, what did Hillary call uh, the deplorables, right? Um, that's the idea of a vulgarity. And, and then an obscenity is, is something that, that shocks the, the, uh, the population. It's, it's something that is just totally uh, out of bounds in, in the society's acceptance of, of right and wrong and morality and so forth. And we've actually probably reached the point now where everything has been so... Um, I don't know that there's any obscenity left for the American culture. Uh, because everything that used to be obscene is now uh, celebrated with parades and, and everything else. So um, I, I guess maybe there's an obscenity out there somewhere still, but um, might be a, might be on the endangered species list when it comes down to that. So, all right, good question. I appreciate that. Other questions tonight? We get Dean over here for question number two. Can you give a... You're on. Can you give a, a very brief summary of the categories of the 613 laws and of maybe a few of those, how they'd be applied to a, a, a culture like sure, ours? Sure, sure. So essentially when you, when you take all of Mosaic law, which means you're synthesizing Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? And you're, you're, you're putting them in a more logical format than the, the, the Bible itself does. Okay? Um, but when you, when you put them all together, and the rabbis have done this, and, and you have more than the Ten Commandments, you have 613. And they've, they've categorized some of them as positive and negative, right? The, the thou shalt nots are prohibitions, and then the thou shalt are the positive uh, commands. Um, but essentially, I think the simplest way, what I enjoy, is breaking it down between... Um, the, the criminal and the civil and the and the uh, the ceremonial, for example. So, realizing, of course, that we don't have the Levitical priesthood, we don't have the temple, we don't have so anything with respect to the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, the feasts, the the things, anything that centers on the ceremony, on the ritual. All right, that's the that's the um, we can we can take that off the table as far as anything a Gentile nation would try to replicate or incorporate and so forth. Now the moral law, that's that's on the opposite end. We can we can embrace everything in the moral law. You know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. Anything in the moral law of God, I think a Gentile nation can pattern our laws based on that and and do quite well. See, um, does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's kind of a quick breakdown on that. They received a considerable amount of gold and silver to uh, upon leaving mm-hmm. Exodus. They plundered the Egyptians at the Exodus when they left Egypt. Now the plundering, though, was it voluntary or ma- mandated? 
Well, it was very voluntary under the destruction of the ten plagues. I mean, the Egyptians were happy to see them gone. It was like a good riddance. Damn, they go, get out yeah, of here. Yeah, exactly. They were, they were happy to unload anything they could just to get rid of those Jews. And we don't know how much of that ended up in the golden calf, and then they ended up having to drink some of it. A lot of it, yeah. A lot of it ended up in the golden calf. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Thank you. Yeah, no, great questions. All right, back row then. In the purple shirt. You always get, a, you get my attention when you're wearing purple. Somebody may have already asked this. Is our nation really as gone as far as it seems like it's gone? Or is it just the perception because of uh, the press and mass media? You know what I'm saying? Oh, I know exactly what you're saying. And so, you know, the, the perception versus the reality. Um, you know, I, I can tell you what I perceive, you know. Uh, you know, God's the one that has omniscience and I'm the one that has... I have bobniscience, which means Bob knows only what Bob knows, Okay. And I have omnipotence, which means I have the power to do anything Bob can do, um, which can't fix this country. Okay, <laughs> omnipotence can fix this country, but omnipotence can't do it. Um, what else? Uh, Bob, uh, Bobney presence, right? That's the third one. <laughs> Bob is only where Bob is. Yeah. So you know, I'm right here feeding my flock, and and honestly, when it comes to uh, your question about America and how bad are we, uh, I think. Our perception only knows the fringes of how merciful our God is. Um, that if we knew the totality of how dark this nation has become, we would be like Jonah begging for the destruction of Nineveh. And, and, um, and I'm practically there anyway. So <laughs> um, but I go back and forth, right? I'm only a 30, I'm only a 30% conspiracy theorist. So uh, depending on, on what I've read this morning, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where I fall on that. It's not really an answer to your question, but that's probably the best I'm going to do tonight. All right, appreciate that. All right, and then our cleanup hitter, where I'm going to uh, let's come over here to Tams and give Tams our last question. Uh, you actually do. You need to be on the microphone for uh, maybe a simple yep uh, question. Why weren't they allowed to eat the cattle coming out of eat? You know, they were starving and we can't eat. And I was like, don't you guys have all this? Cattle? I'm trying to, instead of an ordinary, you know, they couldn't, you know what I mean? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. a bunch of animals that they took out of Egypt and... Well, they had flocks, they had herds, they had animals, they had possessions, and, and yet they were starving in the wilderness, and and it it's curious on, on that basis. Like, why are people starving in India when there's cattle all over the place? Well, the the, the answer for the problem with India is, is religious, and and... It's not clear how many. Uh, it's not clear how many flocks and herds they did have, and that how long did it take them to to eat everything, you know? And um, I mean, it's it's a good question. I have I'm, I'm just as curious as you are related to that. Yeah. Well, there's a reason why the manna was was from God and it kept them alive. But that's right. Yeah, they did have animals for sacrifice. And you, you start reading through Leviticus and you see morning and evening sacrifices and, and how many bulls. When you see the, the sheer volume of animals that were sacrificed for Aaron and his sons to be ordained, that's, uh, that's a significant amount of food that they could have been eaten when they were grumbling about being hungry. Well, it did, it did tell Pharaoh, hey, we've got to take our cattle. We're not quite sure what the Lord's going to require of us. He made one of 
Right. True. Yep, that's a fact. All right, well, thank you for those questions. Let's, uh, let's get to Exodus 25 and pick up our study from last night. Chapter 25 begins a long section in which the Lord reveals to Moses the pattern for Old Testament worship. He's going to be supplying Moses with the blueprints for the tabernacle, and in, not only in verbally describing what, uh, what it is that Israel needs to do, but also showing him. We have the text that indicates that, that he was given a vision, that he's shown the heavenly reality, that the blueprints he was supplied are patterned after the heavenly reality that Moses was shown. And so we have uh, kind of an interesting uh, consideration going into the construction of it here. The section actually begins with a call for an offering in verses 1 through 7. Uh, an offering that's to be collected on the basis of grace with no specific amount that's set for the gift. And this is very noteworthy because I think as, as Christians in the church age with the New Testament, I think that we're accustomed to uh, appreciating the, the age of grace in which we live and the fact that our giving procedure is unto the Lord is on a grace basis, that we're not under the tithing of the Old Testament. And some of us maybe came out of more legalistic type churches where they practiced tithing or what they called tithing, uh, but simply they were functioning in, under an Old Testament concept in a New Testament kind of way. And, and the New Testament never tells us to tithe. The tithing is strictly the have-to, the 10% have-to that Israel was under in their, in their uh, system. Well, here we have grace, and this starts off with grace, and that sometimes maybe surprises people that uh, every time they find grace in the Old Testament, yes, there is grace in the Old Testament. Don't be so surprised. So let's look at verses 1 through 7 here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. So nothing's required, but if your heart moves you, then... Uh, I thought I prayed. I did open in prayer, didn't I? I can open in prayer again. All right, we're good. All right, so everyone whose heart moved him, you shall raise my contribution. All right, and so in, in this, it's not mandatory. If, if your heart doesn't move you, then don't do it. But if your heart moves you, then give, and give what you want to give as unto the Lord. So this is the contribution which you are to raise from them, gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, uh, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. So some of it is precious metals, cash, or some of it is actually building materials or precious items for the, uh, for the high priest garment and, and all the rest. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. All right? Now, of everything on that list, there are a, little, a couple of puzzles and things, you know, vocabulary-wise and manuscript-wise. Um, porpoise skins in the desert, where, where do they come from? Okay? And yet, it's actually quite feasible that, uh, that the... the they call it the dugong. There's, there's, there's a mammal, a water mammal there in the Red Sea, uh, in the Mediterranean, and would be very you know, much uh, uh, hunted or fished for, and the Egyptians would use it, great waterproof ca capacity for the, 
for the uh, skins, for sandals or, or uh, coats and so forth. Anyway, particularly when we learn that it's the porpoise skins that go on top of the other linen, we recognize it's a, it's a rain barrier. It's keeping the tabernacle dry in, uh, in the construction there. All right, so you see a pattern and you get the materials together and there it goes. And he doesn't tell them how much to give. He is going to give them dimensions. He's going to give them specifics on the the construction uh, description. But as far as how much money to give each person, whatever, it's every person as as their heart moves them, right? And then, of course, who's in charge of moving the heart, right? God knows what he's doing, and God moves those hearts, and God knows the believers with the capacity to give. And uh, we have it here. All right. Only those believers with a spiritual capacity to give on the basis of grace, will do so. And you wouldn't want it any other way. We have that written into our church constitution, by the way. Uh, Austin Bible Church does not accept financial contributions from unbelievers. We just don't do it. We are supported by born-again believers in Jesus Christ, by the members and supporters of this ministry, by by brothers and sisters that appreciate the the ministry of the Word of God and desire to support the ministry of the Word of God on on a grace basis. And uh, wouldn't have it any other way. And then what we're going to see here, the uh, provision that gets raised here is absolutely abundant. It is more than sufficient. It is too much. We even they have to say, stop, we have enough. Stop giving. Stop bringing material in. And the issue's there. All right. So the contributions were to be a variety of precious items. Verses 3 through 7 describes those. We just read through those. The um, uh, also, the donations were in labor, in uh, service in kind, the craftsmanship and the work that went into building the uh, tabernacle. Some folks maybe didn't have the material means, so they provided the labor in, uh, in lieu of, of uh, cash contributions. The contributions are designated for the construction of a tabernacle and the outfitting of the Levitical priesthood. And so, uh, just like uh, modern churches today, or just like any any organization in the history of mankind, you've got your startup costs, and then you have your ongoing operating expenses, right? So you've got to you've got to build the structure. In this case, it's a portable structure, so it's something that has to be uh, you know broken down and moved from place to place, and then set back up again in uh, in that operation. And remember, they still don't know that this is a 40-year gig, okay? We know that with our hindsight. They don't know that yet. They think they're just building a temple and marching up to, you know, marching to Zion. But uh, they're going to get there, and then they're going to change their mind about going in, and so they're going to have a 40-year delay. And this tabernacle that they build is going to be their place of worship for the entirety of that, of that journey, and actually for years beyond, through the period of the judges, until Solomon builds the temple in, uh, in his day. So uh, the tabernacle is to be constructed according to heavenly blueprints that Moses is given on the mountain. It's called a, uh, wow, your device ran into a problem and needs to restart. We're collecting some error info and then we'll restart for you. Okay. That's why we have paper Bibles. So verse 10 says, uh, they shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits high. All right, this is not Noah's Ark. This is the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And it's a little bit puzzling. I, I never as a kid could figure out why, why do they call Noah's boat an ark and why do they call this, this chest an ark? Couldn't they come up with two different names? 
So they construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and you shall make a gold molding around it. There we go. Anybody know my password? All right. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark with them. Remember, this is portable. And the poles are doubly critical because they can't be touching the ark. The poles allow them to carry without touching the ark. All right. Let's see if we can get back up and running here. That happened one other time, too, some kind of a system crash. Good thing I stay up to date on all my Windows updates. All right. There we go. All right. I'm streaming. Everything's good? All right. Thank you. One thing I failed to mention back in verse uh, 8, the fact this, this tabernacle, it's got, a, it's got a few different names, okay? called a tent of meeting. It's called a, 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 a dwelling place. It's called a, a sanctuary. It's got different terms that address it, and each term has a significance, right? A sanctuary is a place of holiness, uh, a dwelling place, because you know, the, the creator God of the universe is going to reside there. He's going to dwell in the midst of his people. It's, um, of course, it's called a tent because it's portable. Other, uh, other applications there. The mikdash, the sacred place, the sanctuary, the holy place, comes from the idea of kadash, to, sanctif- to consecrate, to sanctify, to be holy. Something that is set apart, something that is designated for a, uh, a, a, a holy purpose. Okay? And that's, that's all of us. We have all been sanctified, set apart when God saved us. He's got a holy purpose for us. And we can appreciate these, uh, these expressions. For the purpose of dwelling among Israel, shock hand, to dwell or to reside. If you think about it, a, a God uh, like our God, you know, who's omnipresent, who's literally everywhere, when he chooses to dwell in a particular place, that becomes awesome. That becomes a, a wonder to behold. Because in his omnipresence, he's everywhere. But he chooses to, to shock hand, to abide, to remain, to dwell is going to reside among the Jewish people in the Holy of Holies in this, in this tabernacle. So we can appreciate that as well. The uh, tabernacle vocabulary of verse 9, the mishkan. That's the, the, uh, it's kind of neat the way they just tack an M in front of the word, right? For kadash, they tack an M in front of it and call it a mikdash. For the uh, shakan, they tack an M in front of it and call it a, a mishkan. Okay? And it's just it's a way to describe a place that um, pertains to that verb. And so you have your notes on that and you can have some fun with that later on. 
But even as the Lord was pleased to tabernacle among Israel, we have the same idiom comes in in the Gospel of John where we read that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so that, that great verse in John 1.14 is drawing on this, this image, on this, on this principle, this doctrine that we're studying tonight, going all the way back to the tabernacle from the book of Exodus. All right, so the construction is spelled out step by step, item by item. It's very tedious, it's very detailed. Um, we might allow ourselves to be bored with the details. I pray that we don't. We're, we're going to continue to be uh, just awestruck at the, uh, the, the level of detail that God supplies because he's very intricate in this and he's very much concerned that Moses and all the craftsmen working for him follow these, these instructions right to the to the, uh, to the nth degree, and we're going to see that. But we're also going to see the order that he gives this in is not going to be followed by uh, the craftsmen when they put it into place. And that grabs my attention in some ways. So let's pay attention to that as we come to it. Uh, the ark is a picture of Christ as acacia would overlaid with gold. Now the text doesn't tell us that, but it's very commonly understood that way. Wood overlaid with gold. Why? You know, well... Most often when we see the typology in every piece of furniture and every sacrifice and all of the worship there, we see so much of Jesus Christ being portrayed in the sacrifices, in the animals, in the, even in the furniture, in the, the, the compartments, in the, the tent itself. Um, so much of tabernacle doctrine points to Christ. And we understand that the shadow ritual of the Old Testament has its substance in the person of Jesus Christ. All right, And so it's very common. You can find hundreds probably of, of commentaries and journals and, and experts and pastors and whatever else, and they'll say, oh yeah, wood overlaid with gold, Jesus Christ, hypostatic union, uh, humanity and deity. And, and I, it's great, I love it, I get it. Um, I've read that too. I just haven't read that in the Bible, okay? And that's the thing. Show me a verse that says the acacia wood represents his true humanity and the, the gold represents his undiminished deity uh, in hypostatic union, united, united together in one person forever. All right? If there's a verse in the Bible that spells that out, I haven't found it yet. All right? So show me if you, can, if you find it somewhere. And this is where, as I go through the tabernacle furnishings, um, we'll, we'll show you what is typically thought of, and then we'll, uh, we'll relax about it and say, um, the Bible itself does not give us the precision that maybe some of us would like to have. Acacia wood is a hard, incorruptible, indestructible wood native to the Sinai Desert, portraying Christ's sinless humanity. And... Uh, you know, we, we get that he knew no sin, he was made to be sin, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Okay, those, those are true, but those verses we point to in Corinthians and Hebrews, they don't mention acacia wood, okay? They don't talk, strictly they don't talk about the tabernacle or the ark. Overlaid with gold, portraying Christ's deity. Again, I can find verses to prove Christ's deity. Those verses don't point to the gold of the ark. The ark was capped by the mercy seat, the place of propitiation where the blood was sprinkled and where God was pleased. And so when we read this description here and we see the ark and we see the, the lid that gets put on the top of it and when we see the mercy seat in verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat 
And to me, the most puzzling thing in the world is whoever invented the English translation mercy seat. Okay, Because I think it came up in maybe King James or something. Maybe, maybe even older than King James. But it's a kaporeth. It's a place of kafar. It's a place of atonement. And um, you know, and then the uh, the Septuagint translates it a certain way, and then it comes across into the New Testament. And in this one, actually, we have the best recognition because we have Scripture that points to this. Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus is our mercy seat because it's the same word. And so we can appreciate that. Pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. That's the mercy seat. And First uh, John two two, he himself is the mercy seat, the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. All right. So when you're reading that propitiation in the New Testament, understand you're reading mercy seat from the Old Testament. God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Yeah, Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17. Of all the items we've seen thus far in the tabernacle development, uh, the mercy seat is the, is the one that we have the most explicit statement of in relationship to Jesus Christ. All right. Then you shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. We see worship, we see uh, cherubim in association with worship, in association with God's throne, uh, typically with wings stretched out, overshadowing or covering is a picture there. All right, and the mercy seat sits on top of the ark. And there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So that's the place to go. That's the direct face-to-face communion with God is above the mercy seat in that Shekinah glory that comes and resides in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish tabernacle. Second item constructed, the table of showbread. Details there in verses 23 through 30. Acacia wood overlaid with gold. Showbread is a picture of Christ as the bread of heaven. Again, we can point to John 6 as Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven. The table of showbread had bread, but the John 6 passage doesn't point specifically to the tabernacle. I think we can make the connection and we're not wrong for it. It's just not as explicit maybe as some people would, would like. Bread was made from fine flour, sifted and ground. And uh, of course, if you know how to grind flour, that, that pounding can't be pleasant. Uh, there's, there's, it hurts, right? And the testing that we go through and the testing that our Savior went through in His humanity. Baked into loaves. Talking about the heat that gets applied and the maximum testing that He endured in Gethsemane and on the cross. Third item to be constructed, the golden lampstand. That finishes out chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. Again, it's not hard to see the lampstand as a picture of Christ since He is the light of the world. The lampstand is the place of light. Um, lampstand was a pure gold. Of course, John chapter 8, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And that stems entirely from His humanity. The, the light doesn't come from His human source. He comes from heaven with the, with the revelation that He comes with from the Father. 
lampstand also can picture the work of Jesus Christ, head of the church, guiding and directing the local church lampstands. But that, again, people make that connection because there's a lampstand in the tabernacle and there's seven lampstands in, in Revelation and they immediately want to put those passages together somehow. Revelation 2 and 3 never references the tabernacle. Okay? I would, uh, I would say it's, it's a metaphor in both places and we, we identify it in each context for what it is speaking to. All right, gets us now to chapter 26. The fourth item to be constructed. Are you keeping a list? All right, keep a list. Just, just number them, 1 through 12, right? 1 through 14. There's a couple of items that don't get numbered, but just you know, plug them in there where they plug in in between the numbers. And uh, the fourth item to be constructed, the curtains of linen. The curtains of linen, verses 1 through 6. All right, the tabernacle shall be made with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. Make them with cherubim, with the work of a skillful workman. And then we have the length and we have the details here. Each curtain shall be 28 cubits, the width each uh, 4 cubits. And the curtain shall have the same measurements. All right, a cubit being basically a foot and a half. All right. So do the math. And even that gets debated, okay? Because there are different kinds of cubits. And there's a basic cubit, a royal cubit. The, uh, tons of scholars will argue back and forth about which, which cubit is this and all the estimates there. Of course, when we're thinking about veils, we, we are reminded about the, uh, the body of Christ. And when he died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Other elements there. All right, the fifth item to be constructed, the curtain of goat's hair. This is verses 7 through 13. Goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains in all. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, the width of its uh, 4 cubits. I'm really going to save time on this, okay? Because you're reading this in your morning reading and your daily reading and we're, we're going over the details here in class. I want to hit the high points and I'm trying to cover four chapters before the bottom of the hour. But when you think about goat's hair, does that strike you as attractive? <laughs> does that strike you as ooh, glorious, glamorous? Okay. Now actually we struggle. We absolutely struggle. And if you ever, uh, uh, for example, the, the Bible has love language, uh, romantic, erotic poetry and, and language in, in terms of, of a man and a woman as they describe their attractiveness and they describe and, and honestly Sharon and I have read that and laughed at some of the descriptions about you know your, your hair is like a flock of goats and, and, and that was intended to be erotic and, and, and flattering and, 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 and that's, we, we wouldn't use those expressions on, on Valentine's Day and you know, have any kind of hope of anything appreciated, appreciated there. <laughs> so standards change and um, aesthetics are different from era to era and culture to culture. Um, but still, the, the plain appearance of this curtain compared to the other curtains with the fine linen, bright and clean, with the, with the description of the cherubim and all the uh, embroidery and all of that, 
the plain appearance of a curtain as a picture of the plain appearance of Jesus Christ. I, I can go for that. I, that makes sense to me. Jesus uh, had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. So when, when Jesus walked this earth, he was not a handsome fellow. He wasn't dazzling people with his, uh, with his uh, personal appearance. The plain wrapping picture also shows the humility of Christ who laid aside his privileges to dwell in the body of man. And no question there, Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he came to this earth and was found in appearance as a man. So I think we can, uh, we can appreciate that as well. Alright, that gets us through 7 through 13 here in chapter 26. All right. The sixth item to be constructed, the covering of ram skins and porpoise skins. You should make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of porpoise skins above. And so usually that's thought of as being the waterproofing is keeping that, you know, how much rain did they get in the desert, but whatever else they needed as far as... um, the permanent establishment. That, that Remember, the plan is, is to walk 11 days to Kadesh Barnea and then conquer the land and then settle somewhere the, the, that uh, ended up being Shiloh or a couple of different places where uh, the tabernacle was, was set up on a more permanent basis. And, uh, you know, for years and years the tabernacle sat there and would need uh, to be uh, weatherproofed in, uh, in Israel. The seventh item to be constructed, boards, bases, and bars, oh my. Boards, bases, and bars, the framework walls of the tabernacle, and the details there. So, boards, bases, and bars. Uh, sockets, it gets translated, or I think bases in the, in the uh, footnote. Yeah, sockets or bases. And then boards, and then bars. So if you dump the sockets and call them bases, then you can have all B's in your uh, boards and bases and bars. The bars are of acacia wood, five of the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle. Anyway, this provides the, the reinforcement on the strength on the walls. Again, but it can be disassembled, it can be broken down, it can be toted from place to place, and uh, that's what they're going to do for 40 years. moving, the, Setting it up, tearing it down. Setting it up, tearing it down. Every time they moved, time to tear it down again. And on we go. Alright. Then the eighth item to be constructed, the inner and outer veils, verses 31 through 37. The veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. So again, some of these things are described as being artistic and, and the work of a skillful workman and then some is described as being quite plain. So this is the veil here. It says in verse 33, you shall hang up the veil under the clasps and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil and the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the most holy place. The holy place and the holy of holies. That the tabernacle itself, the tent itself is going to have the two compartments, the outer and then the inner. Okay, 
And, uh, and then, of course, the courtyard is beyond that, and then the overall uh, walls around the courtyard as far as that goes. One thing else you can do, by the way, is you can find pictures in your software if you're, if you're a picture person. For the tabernacle. Open up your fact book, put in the word tabernacle. You'll have your, uh, your key article. You'll have your media. Lots of pictures. And one in particular that jumps out is this one. Because it's colorful and it's 3D and it shows you the different items. Alright. So the courtyard, the, uh, the wall all around the courtyard, the tent itself with the two compartments. The problem is with the cover on top you don't see those two those two rooms, but the holy place and then the most holy place. I probably ought to bookmark that and put a link to that on my desktop. I'll find a way to do that. All right. Chapter 27. The ninth item to be constructed. Let me just make sure we don't have... Uh, there's, there's details on this. So... You hang up the veil under the class and shall bring the Ark of the Testimony there within the veil. It's got to be at the innermost point. It's got to be at the, the uh, it, because it represents the, the, the climax. It represents the, the pinnacle of approach. That, that each step along the way, there's, there's decreasing numbers of folks that can get that far. <laughs> okay? And so if you're just, uh, you know, uh, just a, a, a Joe Schmuck coming from, you know, uh, just if you're not a Levite, if you're not a priest, if you're just an average believer coming with a sacrifice, then you're going to the door. You're going to the gate of the outer court, and you're bringing your animal, and and you're going to kill the animal there, and the priests are going to take it from there. They're going to take the blood. They're going to go inside. They're going to sprinkle. They're going to do what needs to be done inside. If you're a priest or a Levite, you're going to get further in. If you're going to, uh, 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 if you're a priest, you're going to get further in to go into the the holy place itself. Okay, but only the high priest gets into that holy of holies. And that's just, that's one guy. Okay? And that's just one day a year. That's on the Day of Atonement that he's going to be going in there. And so there's procedures to follow to to take it each step of the way. All right. Hope this is all familiar to you if you're resting on this. By the way, you got to study this every now and then or you forget half the details. You forget 90% of the details. And you're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Alright, so the veil is in place, the ark goes behind it, serves as a partition between the holy and the most holy. And then the mercy seat is the lid that goes on top of the ark. And then the table goes outside, so it's in the holy place. The table and the candlestick, the lampstand. Put the table on the uh, lampstand on the south side, table on the north side. Then you should make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. You shall make five pillars of acacia for the screen and overlay them with gold. Their hooks also being of gold, you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. All right, is your head spinning yet? Is this too much detail? And say, now I know why they needed it back then so they could build it. But why did it get put in the Bible? Why is it still in the Bible? Why am I reading it in 2022 AD? All right? I don't need to build a tabernacle. But see, 
there's so many principles that come out of this that I'm glad it's in the Bible. And I'm glad that all the animal ritual is in Leviticus. And I'm glad that, that everything that he put in there is for our instruction. All right? It's God-breathed, it's profitable, it's edifying. We just need to adjust our sense of, of what bores us and what we can appreciate. And then we've got to be honest. Say, Lord, I shouldn't be bored by this. Help, help get me excited. All right. As I think I confessed a couple weeks ago, Leviticus is, is in my top 66 favorite books of the Bible. And I, I, I still hold to that. I haven't changed my view. Chapter 27. We're not done with furniture yet. The ninth item to be constructed, the brazen altar. 27, uh, Exodus 27 verses 1 through 8. It's wood, but it's overlaid with bronze. Usually it's thought of as, of course, humanity still. The wood is always humanity. But then bronze is very frequently, it's an image of judgment. If his feet are burnished bronze, or if, if the sky is, is turned to bronze, it's, bronze tends to be a, a metal that's associated with judgment. The altar was a place where the spotless lamb was slain on behalf of the sinner, picturing Christ as he gave his life for us. And of course, Isaiah 53, we turn to very frequently as, a, as the lamb without spot or blemish, willing to be sacrificed and uh, taking our place with our iniquity imputed to his account. And so the first eight verses there of chapter 27, you're going to see the altar of acacia wood and the horns on the four corners and uh, the pails for removing its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. I mean, tons of utensils. When you consider the, the volume of, of animal meat that gets cooked on this thing and then the, the wood for the fire and then all the rest, it's a pretty labor-intensive process. A grating is a network of bronze. On the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. Anyway, details on this. And again, poles for the altar. Why poles? Because you've got to carry the thing. You know, you've got to make a brand new altar everywhere you move to. You've got to pick up that altar and move. Every piece of furniture gets moved when the tabernacle gets moved. You shall make it hollow with planks as it was shown to you in the mountain so they shall make it. All right, then we have the court. The tenth item is the court, verses 9 through 19. And this, I don't know, I, I get puzzled by this. Isn't a court just an empty space in between curtains? If I'm making the curtains, isn't that good enough? Well, God says no, you need details on the court. So the court of the tabernacle on the south side, hangings for the court of fine twisted linen, 100 cubits long for one side. Its pillars shall be 20, 20 sockets of bronze, the hooks of the pillars, the bands shall be of silver. Okay? Anyway, the south side, the north side, they're parallel. The east side, the west side are parallel. The width of the court is 50 cubits, 10 pillars, 10 sockets. Hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits. And it's helpful if the Bible translation keeps consistent on their vocabulary. They don't always. And so sometimes there's something that's called a gate, and then sometimes it's called a, a veil, sometimes it's called a screen. And then uh, there's a couple of different things that are both called veils. And uh, then you, I prefer better consistency on some of the translations sometimes. 
Because I know my head spins. All right, the work of a weaver. All right, well, the court gets us down through verse 19. All the uh, utensils of the tabernacle used in all the service, all its pegs, all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Okay, now, by the way, I have read so many descriptions of the tabernacle that even develop the, the doctrine of the peg, for example. And I look at these verses and I'm, I'm just wondering, how do you get that? How do you get that? It's not in that verse. You know, I mean, I don't know. And sometimes I, I think people, I don't know, I think there's a tendency to try to get something more, something new, something nobody else has ever seen before. And, and, and so like every time somebody writes something about the tabernacle, they, they try to write something that's never been in print before. My suspicion is, you know, 3,500 years later, everything that's been written on the tabernacle, somebody has said it already related to anything that's here. No, maybe I'm wrong. All right, the, uh, so the tenth item, the tabernacle court. Finally, an admonishment here. Israel is admonished to have plenty of oil on hand for the continual provision of light in the tabernacle. So verses 20 and 21. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you a clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. You don't want it to get dark. That It's not going to go out. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. So all night, every night, that light's got to stay on. That lamp has to stay burning. That oil has to be supplied. And uh, the priests are going to be, you know, operating the, the lampstand. But it's the people that have to keep providing the oil. Okay, they got to keep providing the oil, like trying to get gasoline to Canadian truckers or something. You got to you got to get the the fuel to them, and and you can't run out. <laughs> All right, we're not done. In fact, there'll be more tomorrow as we get past chapter twenty-eight. Uh, chapter twenty-eight. Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Now this is curious too, and, and it's I ponder this a lot. I don't know if I'm going to come up with any answers, but I mean, if Moses hadn't been weaseling out back at the burning bush, right, when God was calling him, it, Moses was doing everything he could to not to get out of this duty, right? To say, send somebody else, and I can't do this. And 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 finally, you know, Aaron gets appointed to be his helper, to be his partner in this. And they go to Pharaoh, and they they work together to redeem Israel out of Egypt and all that. I ponder though, what if you know was the design originally for Moses to to do this, or did God plan for Aaron all along? to be for you know, for Aaron to be the high priest all along was that always the the directive will or is this the permissive will of God in this i mean god is capable of, of creating a plan to go either way with directive will permissive will overruling will and and so forth it's curious to me and the more i i ponder it i i come down on the side of the fact that god had always intended it to be a tandem between Aaron and Moses together and, uh, and I'll show you why when we get to, um, it won't be tonight, but remind me when we get to this, 
when we see the consecration of Aaron as the high priest, when we see him ordained, and when we see that priesthood ordained, that um, I've got some notes in there and some thoughts related to the difference between a mediator and a high priest. Okay, And I think uh, they, they had to be distinctive persons. Two brothers, distinctive persons. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get that far. Because it impacts our understanding of the book of Hebrews in a lot of ways. When we understand the, uh, the role of Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant, but also the role of Jesus as the high priest, as the Melchizedek high priest. And uh, so remind me if I forget, I'm not going to forget, we're going to highlight that when we get to that point. Because I think it's vital in, uh, in a lot of ways. All right. So Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons, okay? Um, he has four sons, all right? Forget, you know, we know about Nadab and Abihu, but just pretend you don't know about that. They're not dead yet, okay? And they're going to die shortly, okay? We get that. Spoiler alert. Um, but we don't know that yet. Aaron is consecrated with four sons consecrated for this priesthood. And imagine, again, the what-ifs, the timelines, or the alternative uh, scenarios uh, if, if Nadab and Abihu do not die in this case. And then how many courses of Levites will we, or of, of priests will we have in, in, uh, by David's day and by Zechariah's day and, and so forth. Anyway. God only knows because that's not what ended up happening. But Eliezer becomes the firstborn and then Ithamar and then, and then between the two of them we find that there are 24 divisions of priests that they get put into the structure they get put into. All right. Exodus 28. The next step in the establishment of Mosaic law pattern for worship is to prepare the holy garments for the priesthood. And so um, God is establishing everything. The place like we would call it the church building, the, um, the priesthood, the people that are serving there, okay, the pastor and the deacons, the fellow elders, whatever. But then also the, the uniform, okay, which we're not big on in our day and age, but boy, howdy, were they big on the uniform, the robes, the, the, uh, the, all of the ephod and the, and the breast piece and all of the stones and, and everything, the Urim and Thummim, what are those? All of the items that are here. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. Nothing wrong with being beautiful. And God wants it beautiful. He wants it glorious. And you shall speak to the skillful persons. All right. So the, um, the high priest uniform is described here in verses 3 through 5. Ephod, breastplate, Urim and Thummim, robe and turban. That's a lot of information. Speak to the skillful persons. And this is a wisdom application, right? I think, it's, isn't it Chakam uh, wisdom? Yeah. And so um, you can have Baba wisdom, you can have uh, seamstress wisdom, you can have carpentry wisdom, you can have, uh, you know, animal butchery wisdom. In, in, in everything you have, this is the skill and the wisdom, and God provides it, and God guides your hands in all these things. Anyway, skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as, as priest to me. And these are the garments which they shall make. And then it's pretty detailed. A breast piece and an ephod of a robe and a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash. They may, I shall make the holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, 
that he may minister as priest to me. Okay. Now, of course, the sons isn't quite as glorious as the as the dad. The, the high priest gets the the most glorious, the most uh, beautiful. All right. Two shoulder pieces joined at the ends. The skillfully woven band. Two onyx stones. Engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. So six names here, six names there. He walks in wearing their names on his shoulders. Seems like you got a chip on your shoulder. No, he's got two. One on the other. He's got 12 names going in there. Filigree settings. Chains of pure gold. And it's curious, when you go through this and you see the stones that are laid there and you see the full description on this, there's a, a reminiscence of this in Satan's description in Ezekiel 26. And you see the stones that he had, that, that he was created with. And uh, a lot of parallel there. Then you have a pocket in your breastplate because that's where you keep your Urim and your Thummim. It's square and folded double. You fold it over double so you got the pocket you can reach into. Then the stones are in four rows of three. Man, it's just a glorious outfit. Glad I don't have to wear that every day. Jeepers. The Urim and the Thummim, they go over his heart. These, uh, we'll talk about these when they get put into use, but the, uh, evidently, as far as we can tell, they were a couple of stones or they're a couple of objects for discerning the will of God, like drawing lots or, or uh, you know, flipping a coin, only more glorious than that. But uh, reaching in and, would, you know, are you pulling out a Urim or are you pulling out a Thummim? What are you pulling out? And you've got these options in, in terms of discerning the will of God. And God sanctified that and He blessed that. And he, it was a tremendous privilege for the high priest to be able to discern absolute truth on that basis. And of course, having the faith to accept that it's the will of God, what stone you pull out. All right, then a turban. Can't forget the turban. You know, if you forget the turban, it's like the uniform is missing something. You've got to cap it off with something on top. And um, the uh, I'm going to make one quick side trip and then we'll come right back to this. But I think about um, when Satan is accusing uh, Joshua the high priest and, and the Lord is rebuking Satan, said this is a brand snatched from the fire and he's going to be dressed in fine linen. You know the passage I'm talking about? And uh, Zechariah chapter 3 showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. So this is now centuries later, okay? Quite a bit of time passing between Aaron and Joshua here, okay? This is not Moses' Joshua either. This is a, a different Joshua, okay? Standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan is accusing him. Because, you know, Satan loves nothing more than to, to bring down spiritual leadership. But the Lord is the defense attorney. The Lord defends defends him. And Joshua is clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel. So he spoke and said to those standing before him, remove the filthy garments. He said to him, see I've taken your iniquity away from you. We'll clothe you with festal robes. And this is a marvelous vision and it's a marvelous message. Okay? Don't don't lose track of the uh, 
of the symbolism on this, but think about it. When, when we got saved, what happened? You know, just think about God just took off that filthy garment of our old man and dressed us in, in his, clothed us in his righteousness. How glorious is that? And then what's really cool, I think, I think Zechariah kind of got carried away in the, in the moment, in the vision, right? He got carried away. He forgot that he wasn't really, he was an observer, but now he becomes a participant. Because Zechariah is the one that speaks up in verse 5 that says, Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. <laughs> it's like he's butting into the Lord's business here when the Lord and Satan were, you know, arguing about Joshua the high priest. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. I just think that's, I, I love that. I mean, isn't that fun? When, when, when the prophet who was viewing this whole vision just couldn't help himself and threw a plug in there for a turban. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so I think about that when I think about the high priest here and the, uh, the turban that he's given. All right. Well, we're going to run out of time here. So we get to the end of chapter 28. The priest's uniform is then described in verses 39 through 43. It's, it's also marvelous, but not quite as glamorous as the high priest, but we should expect that. All right. Well, that wraps it up. Tomorrow we'll come back for day 43. Do I have that right? This is day 42... Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yep. So we'll come back for uh, day 43. We'll continue on tomorrow night, Exodus 29, 30, and 31. There's more tabernacle instructions because we're not done yet. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the blessings of being able to read these these items. And and yes, there's a ton of detail and, and nitty gritty, but it's it's fun, Father. It's It's important for us to learn from. It's written for our instruction. It's God-breathed and profitable. And Father, it it certainly um, becomes painfully obvious that you are very much aware of who we are and what we're doing, that your worship is your business, and that you are very active in describing how you must be worshipped. And uh, we have principles that describe this in the Old Testament and New Testament alike. The idea that we can just come before you any old way, that we can just come before you and and like Cain did with the vegetables, and expect that you're going to bend to our demands is, is nonsense, Father. You are the holy creator God of the universe, and you will be approached on your terms, or you will not be approached at all. We, we, we get that, Father. We appreciate that. And mostly, Father, when we see the detail here, and we see the exclusion, when we study the tabernacle, and we see that the Holy of Holies is kind of a lonely place, uh, with one man one day a year going in there and then and then coming back out when he's done. Father, the contrast with the privilege and access that we have is extraordinary. That, Father, Jesus entered within the veil as a forerunner and we enter within, with, with him, Father. We stand before you together as a body of believers in Christ. We stand before you, Father, uh, not in fear of being struck down not in fear of, of dropping dead before your glory. We are here and we belong here. It's just an amazing and awesome access. Thank you, Father, for being so faithful. So continue to bless this study. Continue our daily reading, Father, uh, day by day, chapter by chapter. Um, this, uh, this roller coaster continues. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.